Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. All right. Let me pull up my notes here real quick. Um, can you guys hear me or is this... Okay. So, yeah. So I was asked to share a little bit this morning. And I'd like to share a little bit about my plans kind of for the next few months. And I'd also like to talk a little bit about the situation in Ukraine and a little bit about the organization I'll be going with. And then I was also asked to give a little bit of a, somewhat of a devotional. So I'll uh, hopefully finish out with that. So I'm sure there's been lots of rumors going out, you know, like what's Caleb up to? You know, you hear all these things, Ukraine, maybe not, maybe so, you know, what's going on? And I've got a lot of questions about that. And I, that's kind of by design um, because I didn't really know I wanted to go out and serve on the mission field. I felt like this was the time to do that, if I was going to. But I didn't really know where. You know, I was talking to my parents about that, and, you know, we were discussing, you know, Brother, Brother Mark and other people, like, you know, what what's a good opportunity? So I didn't really know, and so I didn't want to, you know, go spread a bunch of news about me and then have it not work out, and then, you know, there's a whole embarrassing thing about actually not going and you, when you said you did. So I was like, well, I just won't say anything about it. And... But now at this point, it kind of feels like there's a little more uh, finality in my plans. And so I figured, well, it, I can kind of share you at least what's what my plan is. Now, it's, things could fall through. I honestly don't even have a ticket to Ukraine yet, but that's not in my hands. That's in the organization's hands. They need to figure out when would be the best time for that. But it'll probably um, be here in a couple months. So at the end of this month, September 30th, I will... Lord willing, got to Iowa to work for a farmer, a friend of mine, who was actually a principal at Iowa Bible School. Some of you guys were students there. Wonderful Bible school. I'm just going to quickly go on a rabbit trail and give a little plug. It's Benjamin will disagree, but it's a lot better in Ephrata. And uh, it's just amazing all around. The only thing that I would complain is maybe the coffee is a little lacking. But other than that, the students are great. The teaching is great. The atmosphere is amazing. So... I know there's a group of you guys going to Ephrata this year, and I bless you in that, but think about going to Iowa. It's worth it. Anyway, so this farmer friend of mine it was a principal there, and we stayed at his place twice, at least I have, and he spreads manure. They got all these. If you go out to Iowa, there's these massive pig barns, like massive, and they've got these interesting floors where it's these iron slats, and these pigs walk in there, and uh, they eat food, and then they use the restroom, and that falls to the basement, and the basement is also huge. It holds thousands of gallons, and, you know, he showed me kind of some operations. He showed me the barns, and, and it was one of those things where you didn't really want to pull out your phone because you might drop it, and then you'll never see it again, but I did. I took video, and I was holding it like, you know, like this, and and I got to tell you, it was humid in there. I mean, it was cool to see all the little pigs, and some were pretty big, some were, some were still in the baby stage. It was humid. But anyway, so then they, they, the, they come to collect this at the end of the year, and there's these little, like, ports, I guess, and they drop a tractor, or they back a tractor, they don't drop it, back a tractor, drop a pipe down there with a pump, and they suck up this manure into these big, like, 7,000-gallon tanks, and... He also runs a couple 10,000-gallon tanks. Anyways, they go and they spread this on a bunch of farmers and fields. It's custom manure spreading. And I don't know a whole lot about manure spreading. We don't do it out here in the valley much. 
So I don't know much about that process, but I, I believe it's like direct drill into the ground so there's not this stinky smell everywhere. But I'm guessing I'll probably experience otherwise when I go out there. Um, so the plan is to be out there till around the first week of December. I think I'm flying back around December 6th. And I'll probably be here for two weeks or three weeks. I was thinking about just one week, but it looks like with this whole ticket situation, I think they're trying to align it with other volunteers that are going just to make it, you know, more sense and easier in the traveling system. So I'll be here for about two or three weeks through Christmas, and then I'll probably be leaving sometime in January. So that's kind of my future plans. I'll be there. We'll see probably till the end of June, and I'll be coming back so around six months. So yeah, so I'd like to give a little quick overview on what's happened in Ukraine, because if you're like me, you know, you get all this news that all of a sudden Russia has invaded Ukraine, and, you know, that's big bad news because Ukraine is part of NATO, which means they're going to attack us. Well, then I found out, no, they're not part of NATO. Um, I just figured if it wasn't Russia and China, it's NATO, but that's not how it works. So they invaded Ukraine, and seriously caused a lot of a lot of damage and I'll show you guys some pictures of before and after that I found online but Ukraine has kind of gone through a lot it wasn't just this whole situation where it's affected them it's been a it's been a long time i guess my understanding was Ukraine joined the USSR back in 1922 and they were part of the larger USSR and Russia, in my understanding, I could be wrong in this, but they used Ukraine as kind of like a testing ground for their philosophies. If we want to um, try something new like collective farms, they tried it in Ukraine. And as a result, there was hundreds of thousands of people died. There was, you know, just terrible famine because there wasn't enough food. People were, there was a lot of corruption. The, the officials of these collective farms were stealing the food instead of giving it back to the people. A lot of people died. And so these, these Ukrainians view these Russians as, Terrible people. And I, I believe that there's... I, I could be wrong. I was going to Google this, but I'm pretty sure Chernobyl was in Ukraine. I could be wrong on that. I'm getting odd, so yeah. So they used Ukraine as, as a... They industrialized it. They, they said, okay, let's build bridges. Let's build factories. Let's, let's put these people to work. And so I say that because I, I reached out to a friend of mine who was just with this organization... And I said, hey, you know, I'm going to be giving this talk, and I'm wondering, is there is there any stories I could share that kind of give the perspective from the ground? Like, what do these people think? And he said, well, I don't really have much stories, but there's this one man that we did his roof, and he said that he remembers what life was like under the USSR. And that kind of put it in perspective for me. Like, these guys, some, some of these older people know what it's like. And so to have Russia start attacking them again and, and start taking over a bunch of their land brings back those memories. And so you can kind of you can kind of see why it's such a big deal. So then, you know, USSR fell apart and that was kind of the end of the Cold War obviously. And so Ukraine declared independence. But it wasn't just this peaceful independence. They had scandals, they had um, election fraud. There was this pro-Russian guy who became president and while he was president, he took out like a 3 billion dollar loan from Russia as an incentive to not join a certain alliance, and then it was found out this guy was elected by fraud, so the Supreme Court of Ukraine kicked him out, put in another guy, they still have this loan, and I believe they're going to court to, to see if they don't have to pay this loan back to Russia. Um, so it was fraught with 
with all these scandals and protests. There was just a lot of, of, of struggles there. Then in 2014, Russia invaded Crimea, which is a, a smaller part of Ukraine. It's kind of like an island, sort of. And they took control of Crimea. And some people obviously don't recognize that Russia has control of that, but they do kind of. And so, yeah. Then last year in February, people started noticing that Russian vehicles were kind of surrounding the borders of Ukraine. And Russia said, no, there's nothing going on. Don't worry. Nothing's, nothing's, nothing's going on. Well, something was going on. And they invaded in February last year, 24th, I believe it was. They invaded on like the north side, the east side, and obviously through Crimea, which is on the south side. And they, like, I, I'll show you some pictures. But within the first couple days, I think it was, there's this really interesting video online. It's an animation video, and it has the map of Ukraine. And it shows how fast Russia took over. And kind of has a timeline from... February 24th to now. And I'd encourage you guys to go watch. It's kind of interesting. So I took some screenshots of that and I thought I would show it to you guys. I just have a couple pictures. I won't take too long with these. Um, so let's see here. problem. Okay, well, while it warms up. So, yeah, so they, they took over, and I got, like I said, I got these pictures to show you, but they really tried to push in towards Kiev, which is the capital, and they got extremely close, like, just within a, a few towns away from Kiev. Well, then, you know, their idea was to come in, take Ukraine off its feet, topple its government, and then kind of create it as a pro-Russian state, but they didn't kind of estimate how powerful Ukraine was, and Ukraine pushed back tremendously, and um, could someone hit the lights? Okay, so I don't know if you guys can see that very well, but all this yellow stuff, this is Crimea down here, and uh, this is all this yellow, this is the day of the invasion. They had made that much land in 24 hours, and within the next day, this is the next day, they pushed almost directly to the capital. So it was an, it was an incredible invasion. They made a ton of land. This was a few months later. Um, and then a couple, a few months later, but after the invasion, Russia, or sorry, Ukraine kind of really started working on its counteroffensive and pushing Russia out of the land it, it, it had taken. And so now Russia's kind of on this, this east side of, or, well, I'm not quite sure. I think it's the east side of Ukraine. And it, it's been pretty stable. This is the last year. This was a couple months ago. And they've pretty much stayed in this region. They haven't gained or lost any ground right there. And it looks like it'll probably stay that way. So, but that being said, like I said, Russia didn't recognize that Ukraine would put on such a fight. And so they changed their tactics and they started attacking infrastructure. They started attacking utilities like power and water. And I heard somewhere where there's 17 million people that had no power. And this was in the fall of last year. So you can imagine their winners get down to like negative four. And so to have no electricity, to have, some of them had no roofs. Some of them 
well, obviously those people probably left. But I, I'd seen pictures, and you guys probably saw these too, of these tents that they'd set up in the streets where you could come in, you know, kind of warm up and charge your phone. It was that bad. And uh, now I think still there's around 9 million people who don't have power. So that's just kind of a different map. This, this blue part shows where they were, and this is kind of where they still are. So I believe that's pretty much everything for now. Um, but Russia kind of used a different tactic, which is kind of the, the main tactic of, of today's warfare. You know, before it used to be, you know, trench fighting. Like in Vietnam War, you'd dig trenches and you'd shoot people from your trenches. And they still do that. There's, you know, we've probably all seen videos of trench fighting in Ukraine. But they've started to use artillery. And that's a very, it's, artillery is very interesting and there's, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing if you want to study out. But that's how they kind of got so much of their land. They would, they would set up their cannons and they would fire these, these shells that explode and just decimate property, decimate people. And they'd use that to kind of protect themselves as they would advance. They'd just shell the next town and then go to that town. Everyone would be gone or dead or, or injured or whatever, and they would just go to the next town. So a lot of this, maybe, they're not very accurate. They, they really can't pinpoint certain areas. Um, they, they can to a degree, but not with very much accuracy. So it's not like it kills a lot of people, but it damages property like crazy. Um, this is another thing they use. It's a form of artillery. It's called a mortar. And these are almost more for psychological warfare because these are even less deadly because they don't, they only have a range of about 10 miles and they've got no accuracy whatsoever. But you never know when these are going to come down on you. And so it's, it's like, you know, the effective kill range of these is maybe only maybe 20 feet in, in, um, diameter. But it's still, you never know when it's going to, when it's going to hit you. And, Obviously, these blow up buildings and stuff. So there's a lot of a lot of rebuilding that needs to be done. There's a lot of of hurting people, a lot of needs over there. So that's kind of where IBA comes in. And um, let me go like this, and I will throw this over here so I can look at my notes. That you guys seen what my notes, my misspellings. Okay, so. That's kind of where IBA comes into into uh, play. So, back in 2011, there was a group of people that wanted to kind of start like a Hutterite colony. They had around 900 acres in Ukraine, and but they didn't really have much farming experience. So they reached out to some people they knew in America and said, hey, we need help. So, they kind of created IBA, which stands for International Brotherhood Aid, and they said, well, we'll send a family over there, Wayne Hirsch family, to kind of help with that project. It didn't turn out. I think they, they left out there around 2013. They came out to Ukraine. But by that time, the colony kind of split. The leaders said went separate ways, sold the land. So instead, they started, they purchased a grain dryer, and they decided let's just kind of be a help to these Ukrainian farmers. So they kind of created a place where these farmers could come and dry their grain for a for a cheaper price and uh and uh kind of help them with their business. Then they expanded, they bought a few tractors and they they rent those out to to the farmers for a small price. So then obviously the war started, they changed focus a little bit, they still do some farming, but they started this couple projects and that's probably what I'll be helping with. They have an animal project where they buy chicks, they raise them to chickens. 
um, then they they distribute them out to the people, and those people can use them for eggs or butcher them for the meat or sell them for a little bit of income, just something to help the people who, who don't have much right now. Um, like I said, a lot of them lost their house. You, know, you really can't get a loan out there. Um, you know, there's, there's maybe not much power. There's just not much stuff for them. So they also have a roofing project, and that would be down kind of in this region. So this is kind of where Russia kind of has control, and they have a roofing project, like right, right here. It's still pretty far away from where the, the fighting is, but it's, it's close enough that, um, that there was, there was definitely damage there. So they buy the roofing material, they, they hire like three Ukrainian men to lead out the project, and they have a couple volunteers from the U.S. to help them. And then they dis- distribute food pol- parcels to these people. And then they also deliver food parcels to everyone else, um, or not everyone, but you know, they, We'll go and they'll hold a church service and distribute these food parcels to people. Um, and so that, that will be an interesting, interesting experience. Um, or they'll just leave it with the pastor and let the pastor decide who it goes to. So, yeah, I guess that's kind of a little bit of a background on IBA, a little bit of a background on Ukraine, what's going on over there. So, yeah, I guess I'd kind of like to shift focus. And you guys can turn the lights on. Um, and I'd like to talk about an inconvenient verse in the Bible. It's a verse that, you know, with me going to Ukraine and all, it's something I've been thinking about. And so I'd like to talk a little bit on it. You can turn with me to Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Matthew chapter 28, starting verse 16. So I'd like to give a little bit of backstory. You know, let's look at, at this from the disciples' point of view. They had been with this man for several years. They had seen miracles. They had seen things. They knew that this man was more than just an average man. But then something happened. The Romans caught him. They crucified him. And now their leader was dead. And... Now they're wondering, okay, now, now surely, I mean, he said he would rise again, but surely that, that's not going to happen. And if our leader is, is gone, then what's going to happen to us? You know, the Romans are taking our leaders, then we're probably next. We're going to face what our leader has faced. So you can imagine these things, these things are going through their mind. But then things changed. He did rise. And when he rose, he proved, he proved that he was who he said he was. Because not very many people rise from the dead. I mean, that's, that's, that's something that if someone says, I'm going to rise from the dead, and then he does, that proves something. And so you can, you can imagine these disciples are listening to him. Okay, Their leader has come back from the dead. What is he going to say? And this is right before he left. And, and I've, I've heard that last words should be lasting words. And so you can imagine they were, they were waiting. What is he going to say to us before he leaves? So... Okay, let's start reading. Then the eleven disciples went away to Galilee onto a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the earth. 
So some people use this passage and they call it the Great Commission. And, you know, we've already determined that he had the power, he had the authority to say what he said here. So what does this mean? How do we apply this to our lives? What does it mean to apply this to our lives? Do we need to apply this to our lives? Well, if we read through the book of Acts, we know that they did apply this to their lives. We have stories of, of, you know, Peter and Paul going on these missionary journeys to tell people. They, we, we know we've seen examples of people obeying this, this call. But what does this mean to us today? Do we have to go like Paul did and go for miles to go preach Christ? Or can we do it here from, from our local town? Well, what does this mean to us? How do we, how do we obey God with this command? So, um, I'd also like to note that this is, this verse is a call to action. It's not a passive, you know, it's not passive, it's active. You got it. There's, there's a call to action here and it applies to all of us. So, um, I'd like to talk about three different ways that I feel like we can follow this verse. And I believe there's several different ways that we can, we can obey this, but I'd like to talk about three of them. First, one is obvious, spending extended time on the mission field. You know, we've got several people who've done this. You know, we can think of like Jim Elliott or Hudson Taylor. They spent their life, they went out to China or they went out to South America and they spent 30 years, they spent their whole life um, out there just being with the people and teaching them about Christ. I think that's one definite way that we can obey this verse. But then there's there's other ways that we can do this. There's, you know, instead of going to one location, we can do what other people did. Like, let's just say Paul. Uh, we can go to multiple locations. Paul traveled, I read somewhere, he traveled over 10,000 miles by foot. And he went on three different missionary tours to different locations. That's something we could do. Thomas, he was martyred in India. He, he didn't stay in his hometown. He traveled to India where he was going to try to preach the gospel, but he was martyred. Um, there's there's more recent missionaries. We can think of David Livingstone, who traveled all over Africa and to, to preach the gospel and to try to stop the slave trade over there. And then he died over there, and uh, he spent his whole life. And I, I think that this serving extended time on the mission field is a wonderful way. And if God is calling you to do that, then I bless you in that. But I don't think, in my opinion, I don't feel like this is the only way to obey this verse. I feel there's other ways too. And one thing that came to my mind is just making disciples. And if you notice, this passage doesn't say go make converts. It doesn't say go make supporters of a great cause. But it says go make disciples. And disciples is is a is a different form. It's it's more of a quality over quantity approach. It's more of trying to teach a select few group of people. We can look at Jesus. You know, he had several people who were following him. But he only picked 12 that he really spent his time with. And out of those, he really only picked three that he had, that he was super close to. So, I feel like making disciples is something that we really should be doing. And this thing of discipling is a whole lot more, you know, it seems so high and lofty, but I, I would submit to you that it's a whole lot more common than we think it is. You know, all of us have been discipled in the past. All of us probably wouldn't have made a choice to follow Christ if someone wouldn't have spent the time to disciple us. Whether that be a parent or a friend, we were discipled by someone, and that's why we are where we are today. So, it seems high and lofty, but what does this look like? You know, a disciple is someone who is learning. A disciple who is someone who looks up to someone and says, hey, I'm, I'm watching you, you know, what should I do? 
And so that requires someone who's a teacher. That requires someone who is willing to come alongside that person and give them advice, give them, give them help. And so what does that look like? Well, someone that came to my mind that was great at this, obviously, was Jesus. How did he, how, how was he a disciple? How was he a teacher to his disciples? And if we look at him, he had a humble attitude. He had a patient attitude. He had a forgiving attitude. Because discipling is not easy, right? When, when we disciple someone, whether that, whether that just be, hey, we have a friend and we want to point this friend, let's say we go to work with someone and we want to point this, this person who does not know God, does not care about God, we want to point this person to, towards Christ and so we start speaking in their life, we're going to be disappointed. You know, Jesus' disciples disappointed him several times. You know, think about the times where they said, hey, let's call fire down on this town and Jesus said, no, we don't want to do that. You know, think about times where they were all, you know, afraid. Hey, Lord, we don't have enough food. And, and Jesus is like, well, you know, you know, you know, I got control of the situation. There was times where they were out in the water and they were, they were afraid. They were worried. And Jesus said, peace be still. Disciples in our life will disappoint us. But let's look to Jesus as our example. You know, how did he respond in those situations? So, I feel that that's that's one definite way that we can obey this verse here at our hometown is just finding those people that that need a little bit of encouragement and just spend time with them. Spend time doing activities with them. Maybe it's something that you both enjoy doing. Maybe it's something that only they enjoy doing. But it's some it's time with them, and it, it's it's a way to to show Christ's love to them. And another thing that came to mind is, is mass outreach. And I think this is more quantity over quality. It's not so much the specific few people, but it's just everyone. And this isn't really focused on discipling, but it's more a focus on warning. Because that's another thing we're supposed to do. If we turn to Ezekiel chapter 33, starting in verse 2. Ezekiel chapter 33, starting in verse 2. It says this, Son of man, speak to the children of thy people and say unto them, When I bring the sword upon a land, if the people of the land take a man off their coast, take a, take a man of their coast and set them for a watch, set him for their watchman. And if he seeth the sword come upon the land and he blow the trumpet and warn the people, then whosoever heareth the sound of the trumpet and taketh not warning, the sword come and take him away, the blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and took not the warning. His blood shall be upon him. But he that taketh warning shall deliver his soul. But if the watchmen see the sword come and blow not the trumpet, and the people be not warned, if the sword comes and take any person from them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So thou, O son of man, I have set thee as a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore, thou shalt hear the word of, at my mouth and warn them from me. When I say unto the wicked, O wicked man, thou shalt surely die. If thou dost not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at thine hand. None, nevertheless, if thou warn the wicked of his way to turn from it, and he did not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. So we see here that once again, we'll be disappointed. Not everyone's going to listen to our warning, but we're still called to warn people. And so, you know, this, this is a, uh, 
you know, one thing we've done, Roger's scheduled these in the past, where we go to football games and we pass out tracks to thousands of people. And a lot of them say no. Some of them maybe sit there and talk to you with words that you don't want to hear. You know, some of them may do things that you don't want them to do to you. But we're out there warning people, and that's what matters. And it's it's not necessarily, like I said, it's almost more quantity, not quality. Now, sure, if someone stops to talk to us, we'll sit and we'll take the time to, to talk to them. But we're more focused on, on getting getting those tracks out. I I was sitting there this last, was it last Saturday? I was sitting there and uh, passing out these tracks. And, you know, you're kind of, I was in a competition with Dennis. And uh, I don't know if I should have been, but I was. And I, I lost. Um, and... I was trying to different, you know, different ways on how to pass out these tracks, you know, with things, catchphrases, you know, did you get one of these with smile, no smile, you know, step out, don't step, you know, I was trying all these different things and there was this old lady that was standing next to me and she cracked me up, but I noticed that, you know, she didn't seem like she was angry at what I was doing, but then she came up and talked to me and she, she started talking to me about like, you know, hey, like, um, my husband is is the announcer for the for the ducks, and I was like, okay, and I didn't believe her. She did have a VIP pass on her, so maybe she's accurate. But um, and the announcer is an old guy, so who knows? But she was talking to me, and she was saying how you know her husband is this, and and she was just all this conversation about the church she went to, and and I was just like, mm-hmm, you know, trying to yeah, you know, like trying to pass all these tracks because I was thinking in the back of my head, Dennis is going to win, and I'm going to lose, and. But, so yeah, we do take the time. If someone's, someone wants to talk to us, we'll take the time and, and, and speak into their life. But it's really trying to get that, that word out. As I, it was kind of funny because there'd be people that like snub their nose at me like, no, I don't want one of those. And she'd be like, they've got a surprise coming their way one day. Which is true, but it just kind of struck me a little funny. So, um, yeah, and, and so like this can be difficult. It's it's a mindset. How do we how do we do this mass outreach? And one one uh, way I'd like to illustrate this is when I come back from Ukraine, the Lord willing, I'd like to start my own business. And you know, okay, when when you have a business, you need clients. Well, how how do we get clients? And uh, you know, you got the idea of business cards. We've all had people pass out a business card to us. We know what that's like. And so. That's, that's just a, you know, when, when we look at it from that perspective, you know, hey, I go to a gas station, hey, I'll pass them a business card, you know, I'm, I'm looking for a new client. I go to the, the dentist office, I'll pass them a business card, I'm looking for a new client. It's this mindset of, hey, you know, we, we got a goal, and hey, I'm already here, I may as well give them this. Um, but that's, you know, that's obviously not just the only way. You got, also, you can talk to other people who've had experience in that. Hey, how, what worked for you? How did you, you know, and that's something I, I did with Dennis. And coming back and I found out he won, I was like, just, hey, so what'd you do? You know, what was the word you used? And uh, that's something we can do. Hey, what worked for you? How did you, how did you warn this person? Um, so, and even if the Lord does call us to an extended mission field, I do feel that these last two, being, making disciples and doing this mass, mass outreach is something we're still called to obey. We can see Paul had, Disciples, you know, he had Timothy that he discipled. He had, um, I believe, uh, yeah, he had John Mark. I believe was another one. He spent time with these people, even though he was out on these extended trips. Um, he, he also did mass outreach. There's times where he was on Mars Hill and he was preaching. You know, we got stories of, of Jesus doing that Sermon on the Mount. So, in conclusion, I'd like to liken it to 
this question. Are we a desert, a swamp, or a rushing river? A desert, there's no life. There's nothing there. And none of us want to be that desert. Or are we like a swamp? In the swamp, there's life, there's water coming in, but there's no water coming out. And when I went to Louisiana to help with the the cleanup after the hurricane, there was a lot of swamps. And I got to get up real close to swamps because I was looking for alligators and I wanted to see an alligator. Um, and so I'd go up to these swamps and I'd look at them. And I got to tell you, they were not nice places to be. There was fire ant hills everywhere. It was thick, gross, stinky mud. There was alligators. I didn't see any in the swamp. We saw one later, um, ate one later. Um, and uh, water moccasins. It was just not a place you really wanted to be. And so, are we like that? Are we a swamp where we got stuff coming in our lives, but we're not letting anything out? Or are we like a rushing river? You know, a rushing river has a source. It, it can't stay a rushing river if it doesn't have a source. But it also can't be a rushing river if it doesn't have an outlet. And so, do we allow? Do are we letting things through our life and blessing other people as we be blessed? Because remember, we have a tremendous privilege. We know who Christ is. We know who our Savior is. And we also have tremendous news. We've got some of the best news out there. You know, we got the, the way to salvation. And so, sure, we may not have the skill, but if we start small, we start with, with small habits. We create habits of sharing Christ. We maybe invest in just a few friends and point them towards Christ. You know, it doesn't have to be anything crazy, but just start small and let the Lord take it from there. So, yeah, that's all I have to share. I hope that's a blessing to you.